Turn in your Bibles this morning to John's Gospel. The 15th chapter is where we're going to spend our time today, John 15. The words will appear here on the screen. You can follow along as I read them. John 15, 12 through 17. Here's what it says. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from the Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, that you love one another. This is the word of God through his Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, you call us here through your Son. You call us your friends. I pray that this morning your Spirit would speak to us well. Jesus says that he revealed to his followers all that you revealed to him. I pray that you would do that work among us this morning too. Reveal the truth to us for your glory and for our joy in the knowledge of your love. In Jesus' name, amen. How many close friends have you had in your life? I mean the, I mean the close friends, the ones that you know would drop anything to come and help you if you needed help, and that you uh, would also drop everything to go and help them. You know, those types of friends, those friends who, who you love to see, you love to be with whenever you can be with them, and whose absences you feel very keenly. How many friends like that have you had? For most of us, I suspect the number of those types of friendships is necessarily small, right? It's a small number of people that are like that, mostly by virtue of the fact that uh, it, it requires a certain kind of chemistry to have that kind of friendship, and the number of people that you have that type of chemistry with is going to be pretty small. Uh, but then also because it usually just takes a long time. It takes years in order for those types of friendships to be built. And so just built into the very definition of that type of friend is the reality that the numbers of them are going to be small. So for most of us, the number of friends like that is pretty small. Maybe, uh, maybe for you, you have never had that type of a friendship. I realize that's a possibility too. Or maybe you're listening to this either here or watching the live stream or listening to the podcast and you're thinking about some friend that you had that was, the friendship was like that, but that friend has gone on to be with the Lord. And even the subject that I'm bringing up is a source of pain to you because of that. But the reason that I'm bringing up friendship this morning is because it reminds us of something bigger than itself. I'm reminding you about the joy of earthly friendship in order to use that as a jumping off point to talk about the even greater joy of the divine friendship. And I use that word because that's the word that Jesus uses in our passage today. The divine friendship, the friendship with God that we were meant to have. And compared to that, our earthly friendships are only um, frail analogs. Really, they're pale shadows 
of that deeper eternal friendship that we were created to have with God. And you might object to me saying that. You might object to me calling an earthly friendship something pale or frail. And I don't mean to, 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 to uh, damage earthly friendships, but, but I think if you take a moment to think about even your best friendships in this life, you'll realize that there's something lacking in them, right? There's something lacking even in the best of earthly friendships. There's always a certain amount of insecurity. There's always a certain amount of anxiety between two sinful people, even in the best of friendships, I think. There's a certain degree to which we question the status of our relationship with our friends. We find ourselves asking questions like, do they really like me as much as I like them? Right? Does he value that friendship as much as I do? Does she value that friendship as much as I do? Right? Even if those words don't necessarily come into our mind verbatim, there's some question like that often in our minds, isn't there? Or there's even the more soul-crushing, anxiety-producing question, does she have a friend that she likes more than she likes me? Does he, does he have a friend that is a better friend than I am? You know? Is this completely equal? Is this completely reciprocal? Right? So there's, there's this amount of anxiety and insecurity built into every earthly friendship. And, and what I'm suggesting to you this morning as we get started is that that clues us into the fact that those earthly friendships were never meant to be the final thing. They were meant to point us to something bigger and better and more perfect. In Christ, we have a friend who loves us perfectly, but isn't patronizing about his love. And who wants us deeply, but he isn't insecure about the want. And who even can be said, in a sense, to need us, but isn't manipulative about his need. That's what the main point of our sermon is going to be this morning. And I know all of you note takers are frantically jotting it down. But let me point out to you that if you flip your bulletin over, you'll see that those three statements are our three points. So they're all there in black and white for you. You don't have to worry about getting it all down before the screen goes away. We're going to be talking about what it means that Jesus is a friend who loves us but isn't patronizing, and that he is a friend who wants us but isn't insecure, and that he is a friend who needs us but isn't manipulative. And I should say, about that third point, I know that for some of you, your heresy alerts are going off quickly right now. You're thinking, Jesus is God. God needs nothing. God is completely self-sufficient. So how can it be true that Jesus needs us? Just bear with me. We'll get there. Okay. Give me, give me a little bit of rope. Hopefully it won't be enough to hang myself, but uh, hopefully I'll be able to explain to you what I mean when I say that there is at least some sense in which we can say that Jesus is a friend who needs us, but isn't manipulative. Okay. In Christ, we have a friend who loves us, who wants us, and who needs us. And in all those things, we see that he is the perfect friend, and that in him we are loved. So this morning is the first of four sermons that we're doing through the month of January where we're considering our identity in Christ. I felt like that was a good way for us to kick off this new year, reminding ourselves of our identity, of who we are, so that out of the firm foundation of that solid biblical truth, we can have the strength and the courage to go through this year. So today, we're going to see that in Christ we are loved. Next week, we're going to see that in Christ we are righteous, perfectly righteous. Then uh, on the 21st, we're going to see that in Christ we are victorious. And then on the 28th, we'll see that in Christ we are powerful. All right. Today we're seeing that we are loved. So first of all, consider the first of those statements that I just made. In Christ, we have a friend who loves us, but isn't patronizing about it. So 
to, to, to begin as we talk about this, I want you to think about earthly relationships again. Think about earthly friendships. In earthly relationships, equality of status is an important principle. It's a, it's a principle that has to be guarded pretty closely, right? What I mean by that is this. You know, put yourself back maybe in Bible times or even in more recent eras of world history where there are stratified social castes. And think about how difficult it would have been in those types of societies for people of different social statuses to be friends with each other. Uh, a noble or a person of royal blood being good friends with a common person. It would have been very difficult, right? Because there would always have been this, this, uh, this tension between is the person of high social status going to condescend and lower themselves in order to to be able to, to, to jive with the person on the lower economic or lower social status? Or is the person of lower social status just using the friendship in order to better themselves in society? There always was a kind of tension. I don't mean to suggest that there never were ever any kinds of friendships like that, but only that they were difficult. Right? In fact, I was trying to think of a good example of this in, in movies or books, and I couldn't come up with a good, solid, concrete one. Maybe some of you can give me some suggestions after the service today. But, but isn't it true that there are a lot of stories, a lot of movies and books that are built on just that kind of, of, of difficulty, of, of friendships between people of different social castes? Now, in our culture, in a modern culture today, we don't have that kind of high and low social status uh, baked into our culture the way they did in ancient cultures. And so we don't have quite the same kind of difficulty in our friendships today. But we still see this principle at work that a certain equality has to be preserved in order for the friendship to flourish. And the best way that you can see this principle at work is when you go out for a meal with your friend, right? When you go out for a meal with a friend, you, you, you order your food, you sit down, you, you eat together, and the bill comes, what do you do? Right? Now, in some cases, there's kind of a playful you know, vying in order to get the bill so you can pay it. But in my experience, in most good friendships, what tends to happen is there's an understanding that both people are going to pay for their own food. Right? Or maybe the bill's going to be split down the middle or something. And the reason for that is, and maybe you don't even think about it. Maybe it's something that happens entirely on a subconscious level. But what I'm suggesting to you is that that is a, a working out of this fact that we need to maintain an equality between us. We don't want there ever to be a sense in which one person thinks that they are better than the other or that one person worries that the other person thinks that they think that they're better than the other. Right? Isn't that true? And we need to protect that. We need to protect that equality of status. There cannot be any kind of patronizing. There cannot be any kind of condescending because that damages the friendship. Isn't that true? You agree with that? So there's this tension. There's this, this difficulty that we're always trying to, to manage in earthly relationships. But in Christ, in the friendship that Christ initiates with us, what we see is a friend who loves us deeply, but isn't at all insecure or patronizing about his love for us, even though he obviously rests in a higher social status, as it were, than we do. Look at what he says in these verses. Verse 12, he says, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And then in verse 13, he says, Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, if you're like me, you read verse 14 and you go, well, that's a weird thing to say about your friends. You're my friends as long as you obey me, right? 
But understand what's happening here. Jesus, in these verses, is telling us a few things. The very first thing he's telling us, quite obviously, is that we're his friends. Greater love has no one than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. Understand, that's not a prescription for how you can have really good friendships. Be willing to die for your friends. That might be a legitimate implication of that in terms of how we love one another with selfless Christ-like love, but that's not the main point of what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is this is the evidence that we are friends, that, that he and his followers are friends, that he is willing and he will lay down his life for his friends. Greater love is known than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Jesus is saying, that's me, guys. I am the greatest love possible. I am the greatest friend possible because I will lay down my life for you. So the first thing that Jesus is telling us is that he's our friend. He's saying that to the disciples and he's saying that to us. We're friends. But then the second thing he says is, you're my friends if you obey me. Why would he say that? Well, the answer is obvious, isn't it? We know who Jesus is. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. Jesus is God in human flesh. That's what we spent all of December talking about. Jesus is the incarnate son of God. He's the king. So, of course, he needs to be obeyed. But you see, this is precisely where, in earthly relationships, we start to have a problem. Because a king can't be friends with commoners. It doesn't work that way. When a king tries to be a friend with commoners, then the king ends up lowering himself and, and, and always trying to, to qualify the commands that he gives. Oh, it's not a command. Oh, you're my friend. I'm not going to command you, right? But Jesus says, no, I'm definitely the king, and I definitely will command, and you definitely will obey. There's no question about the social status here. There's no question about the hierarchy. Jesus is king, and we are subjects. And yet, he insists that we're friends. You see? He loves us, but he's not patronizing about it. He's not going to lower himself, in other words. He's not going to say, you know what, we're friends, and so in, in honor of our friendship, I'm not going to issue commands to you. Peter, would you mind being a witness in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria? Would you mind? Guys, would you feel okay about loving each other like I've loved you? I don't want to command you because we're friends. He doesn't do that. That would be patronizing. That would be him pretending not to be who he is. But he's the king, right? And since he's the king, he makes it very clear, we're going to be friends, but this friendship is one of a king with his subjects. You are my friends if you do what I command you. But then look at the third thing that he says in verse 15. No longer do I call you servants or slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. So in and through all of this, while Jesus on the one hand says, we are friends and I love you. I am a king and you'll do what I say. He also says, you'll do what I say, not because you're my subjects primarily, not because you're my slaves. You'll do what I say because you're my friends. Isn't this an amazing thing? This is the only way, I want to suggest to you, this is the only way that a king can be friends with his subjects, is if on the one hand he maintains his kingship such that he expects complete obedience, but at the same time he can expect that because they're his friends they will obey not because they are his subjects and slaves, but they will obey precisely because their friend happens to be the king. 
And so in Christ, we have this perfect friendship where there's never any insecurity and never any, any um, patronizing, never any condescending, never any worry or, or a need to protect a, a false kind of equality or an imagined kind of equality. It's very clear who is king and who is subject. But at the same time, it is clear that in this relationship, we are friends with him. We are friends with the king. In him, we have a friend who isn't even a little bit patronizing. In him, second, we have a friend who wants us, but isn't insecure about it. Look at verse 16. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Now, again, I have recourse to earthly relationships as an analogy. Think about earthly relationships. In earthly relationships, we tend to be insecure about whether the other person wants us less than we want them. We become insecure if we're the one who's always taking the initiative, right? Have you ever been in that situation where you, where you think to yourself, you know, I'd really love to get together with so-and-so, but I feel like I'm always the one texting, I'm always the one calling, I'm always the one emailing, I'm always the one setting it up. I'm going to wait and see if they contact me this time, right? You ever done that? You ever played that game? And that makes sense. That's a normal thing to do because we want to know that the other person wants the relationship just as much as we want the relationship, right? There's an insecurity, I think, in that sense, built into every single human, every single earthly relationship. But in Christ, that insecurity is entirely removed because of what he says here. He makes it very clear there is no chance that you will ever want him as much as he wants you. You did not choose me. I chose you. Now, we're used to reading that uh, through the lens of the Calvinist-Arminian debate, right? We're used to seeing that as, a, as another statement of God's predestination. He chooses us and, and all that stuff. And by the way, I want to be really clear here. John, uh, in terms of New Testament authors, I think is stronger on that subject than almost any other New Testament author. I mean, he hits that point again and again and again from John 3, where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about how the Holy Spirit goes where he wills and nobody can say where he's coming from, or where he's going, and that's how everyone is who's born of the Spirit, to John 6, where he says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. He says it over and over again in John 6. And I have no doubt that when John quotes Jesus here as saying, you did not choose me, but I chose you, that this statement also is, is, uh, is colored by that whole idea. But understand, brothers and sisters, when you think about that subject of God's choice, God's election of us, if you think about that primarily in terms of why does God choose these people and not those people, you're missing the point. The whole point of the doctrine of election is to describe the love of God. Of course he chose you before you chose him. He had to. There was no other way for it to happen. Because he is God. Because he is eternal. Because he is love. The fact that God makes the first move towards his people is not talked about in Scripture primarily in terms of who gets chosen and who doesn't get chosen. Those are human red herrings. Those are red herrings that come up in human minds. The point is, God loves us. Jesus loves you. Of course he acted first. Of course he loved first. That's what he's saying here. He's saying, I chose you. 
You see, in other words, there doesn't need to be any insecurity in our mind. We never have to look at Jesus and go, I wonder if he loves me as much as I love him. He doesn't. He loves you infinitely more. There's no chance in hell that you'll ever love him as much as he loves you. Do you see? Do you see the glory of this? He loves you. And he's fine saying so. (laughs) This is the other thing that's amazing about this. Again, if we look at this from the perspective of human relationships, we would feel very insecure about making a statement like this, wouldn't we? Wouldn't you feel insecure to look at someone and say, I know that I love you more than you love me. I chose you first. I know you didn't really want me, and I'm okay with that. (laughs) We, We would never be able to say that. But that's precisely what Jesus is saying here. He's looking at his people and he's saying, if I hadn't acted, you would still hate me. If I hadn't acted, you would still have your fists raised in rebellion against me. But because I chose you, I love you, now we have this relationship. Now we have this friendship. There's no insecurity here, is there? In Christ, we have a friend who loves us and isn't even in the least insecure about it. This means, one other, one other note here, this means that our relationship with Jesus is not based on us. I mean, that's one of the obvious implications of this, right? Our relationship with Jesus is not based on us. It's not based on our uh, loving him properly. It's not based on our uh, walking perfectly faithfully 100% of the time. It's based entirely on his love for us. I think this is, this is a truth that John revels in. That's why he talks so much about this idea. That's why in John's first epistle, he makes a point of saying, we love because he first loved us, right? First John, something or other. He says that we love because he first loved us. Our ability to love is built on, it's grounded in the soil of his love for us. If he hadn't loved us first, we wouldn't be able to love him, let alone anyone else. This too, I think, is why John, at the end of this gospel, will start calling himself repeatedly the disciple whom Jesus loves. Remember that? John 19, John 20, John 21, four, five, six times John refers to himself in the third person as the disciple whom Jesus loved. (laughs) And you're not supposed to read that and go, wow, didn't John have a big head? John sure thought a lot of himself. I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. No! The point is we can each say that. John wasn't thinking highly of himself. He was pointing out the fact that his whole identity is the fact that Jesus loves him. And friends, we can say the same thing, right? That's the point. We can use John's words about ourselves. In fact, maybe you should do that. I mean, don't do it out loud. We don't want chaos here this morning. But just in your mind for a moment, say that to yourself. I, put your name in there, am the one that Jesus loves. In Christ, we are loved. In Christ, we have a friend who loves us but isn't patronizing and a friend who wants us. You did not choose me. I chose you. He wants us, but he isn't insecure about it. And third, in Christ, we have a friend who needs us but isn't manipulative. Now, I tried to find a better way to say this because it, it, it rankles me also to say he needs us. That rubs me the wrong way. Because my mind goes the same place that your mind goes. Jesus is the incarnation of eternal God. God is entirely self-sufficient. He needs nothing. There's nothing incomplete about him that we finish. 
So I don't like this, but I can't find a better way to say it. Every other way I found of trying to make the point that I'm making ends up watering it down. And so I'm, I decided to just be content saying he needs us, and then I'm going to clarify what I mean by that and let the paradox stand. All right? He needs us, but he isn't manipulative. Again, in earthly friendships, there is a strange kind of schizophrenia where at the same time we want to be needed, but we don't want to be used. Right? Isn't that true? In, in, in earthly relationships, we want to know that there's something about us that the other person needs. But if the relationship is dominated by the thing that they need from us, then the relationship quickly sours because, because it becomes something where we're being used for the thing that they need. Right? And so there's this weird schizophrenia in our earthly relationships where we want to be needed, but we don't want to be used. But in this relationship with Jesus, we see the perfect reality, that there is a sense in which it can be said that he needs us, but there is no sense in which it can be said he uses us or manipulates us. Look at what he says. Right after he says in verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. He says, he also appointed us, appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Christ is the perfect friend who needs us after fashion, but also makes it clear that our usefulness to him is the result of our friendship and not vice versa. All right, I'll show you what I mean here. Jesus says he appointed us. He appointed his followers. And he appointed them for a purpose, to bear lasting fruit, to bear fruit that abides. Now, in the larger context of John 15, that language of abiding is something that's always applied to his followers. He tells his followers, abide in me, and I abide in you. Abide in me is as the Father abides in me, and I in you, and you in him, and we in each other, and all kinds of things like that. There's all kinds of abiding happening throughout John 15, but it's always abiding that is applied to people. And so I think it's, it's a fair conclusion that here, when he says you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, that he is talking about future followers of Jesus, future people who will come into the kingdom and become subjects of Jesus as well. So what, what Jesus is saying to his followers is that he has appointed them to go and make disciples. He's appointed them to go and bring other people into relationship with him. That is the fruit that abides, okay? If that's the truth, if that's what's going on here, then there's a sense in which Jesus is saying that the future of his kingdom rests in some sense on his followers going out and producing fruit. Right? Because Jesus' kingdom is people. Jesus' kingdom is all of his followers, all the people who will worship him throughout all time and eternity. And if here he's saying that in order for there to be more people who will worship him through time and eternity, that his followers have to go and bear fruit, then there's a sense in which the future of his kingdom rests on the shoulders of his disciples. It rests on the shoulders of his followers. So he needs them. That's all I'm saying. There is some sense in which he needs them. Is that fair? Oh, we go, we, we think about that, we go, oh, okay. So Jesus has a job for me to do. There's something that I can do that will, that will, will, will fill up the kingdom. There's something I can do that will glorify Jesus. 
There's something I can do for Jesus. That's why he needs me. He needs me. That's why he loved me. That's why he set his love on me is because there's something I can do for him. But see, that's where, that's where it falls apart, right? Jesus is saying that's not it at all. He says, I did not choose you because you could go and bear fruit. He says, I chose you and I appointed you to go and bear fruit. I chose you and I ordained you to go and bear fruit. So in other words, there is some sense in which Jesus needs his followers to go and bear fruit, but it is also clear from the way Jesus talks about this that their ability to go and bear fruit that abides is based entirely in him. He appoints them. And I think wrapped up in that language of appointment is inherent the language of ability and gifting. And, you know, everything that the disciples need, everything by extension that you and I need in order to go and, f- and do this job to bear fruit, that comes from the fact that we have been appointed, we have been ordained by Jesus. And who does Jesus appoint and ordain? He appoints and ordains his friends, the people that he chose, the people that he loved. Do you understand the relationship between these two things? It's not that Jesus loved us and made us his friends because we could be useful to him in his kingdom. It's that he made us useful in his kingdom because we are his friends. And so we have this glorious, these two glorious truths put together in our relationship with Jesus. There is a sense in which he needs us. There is absolutely a sense in which we can be useful to him and we can fulfill that God-given thing in our heart that makes us want to be useful and want to be needed. That's true of us in relation to Jesus. But there is no sense in which we can say, I can give Jesus something that he doesn't have himself, nor is there any sense in which we are forced to say that Jesus is using us or manipulating us because he set his love on us before we were able to be useful to him. He does not love us because we are useful to him. He makes us useful to him because he loves us. This is glorious. He needs us, but not in a manipulative way, not in a way that leads him to use us. In Christ, we have a friend who loves us, but isn't patronizing. We have a friend who wants us, but isn't insecure. And we have a friend who who needs us, but he isn't manipulative. And then all of this, all of these statements that we've been seeing in these verses, they all appear inside what commentators call an inclusio. What that means is that if you look at verse 12 and verse 17, you see that they run very closely parallel to each other, right? In verse 12, he says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And in verse 17, he says, these things I command you that you love one another. They're very closely parallel, aren't they? Uh, You think of them as bookends, Right? That's, that's why I think I'm justified in pulling out this one paragraph from the larger uh, 15th chapter of John, which is a, which is a discourse and, and, and which is itself part of a larger discourse from 14 to 17 in John's gospel. But it's okay, I think, to look at just this one section because these two bookends give us uh, credence to do that. But they also tell us what one of the important implications of all of this is. If it is true that we have this friendship with Jesus in which all of our needs are met, in which we are loved perfectly, in which we are made useful. If that's true, then out of that can grow our love for each other. Out of that can grow our love for one another. And that makes sense in the bigger picture too. 
Because, you see, Jesus' own love for us grows out of the love that he shares with the Father. Do you realize that? Look back at uh, an earlier verse in chapter 15. In verse 9, John 15, 9, Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. What Jesus is telling us there is that the love that he has for his people is itself something that grows out of the soil of the love that exists within the Godhead. The love that flows between the Father and the Son is the foundation for the love that Jesus has for us. And so in the same way, the love that Jesus has for us can be the foundation of the love that we have for one another. It's all connected, isn't it? This also is why Jesus has no insecurity about saying, of course I loved you first. How could it be otherwise? My love for you, Jesus says, is born out of the eternal love that, the God, has, that the God the Father has for God the Son. Of course it came first. There's security here. There's power here. Anxiety is done away here. This is why John can tell us later, perfect love casts out fear. In Christ, we have the friend that we need. In Christ, we have the friend who sticks closer than a brother. You are loved. As you walk away this morning, you need to know that you are loved perfectly by Jesus. That's who you are. In Christ. And that love, understand, is a love that existed before you were born. It's a love that existed before you were conceived. It's a love that existed in the mind of God. God knew you before you were a you. Right? Before the, before the star that we know as the sun burst into gaseous flame in the universe, God the Son knew you and loved you. When Adam and Eve were walking in the garden in innocence, God knew you and loved you. Before the, the angel that we now think of as Lucifer, the devil, Satan, before he rebelled, and took a third of the host of heaven with him and introduced sin into the universe when he was still a righteous angel singing praise to God, then God knew you and loved you. And I'm not talking about he knew you in the sense that he knew humanity and loved you in a general sense. I'm saying he knew you with all of your flaws, your strengths, your weaknesses, your peculiarities, he knew you as an individual. You were in his mind even then, and he loved you. The thought of you filled him with joy. Do you understand this? So much so. Filled him with joy so much that he considered, if I can speak kind of flippantly about, about God and eternity, I think scripture will bear this out. When he considered the options before him, he said, I can create this person knowing that they will rebel against me, knowing that they will be sinful, and knowing that the only way I can have perfect relationship with them is if I come and die for them. Or I could not create. And God loved the thought of you so much that it wasn't even an option. Of course he creates you. Of course you are. Of course he made you because you are loved, 
The fact that you are here means you're loved. I'm convinced, brothers and sisters, that if we can learn to grasp this truth more, it'll solve some of the problems we have in our day-to-day lives. This is the truth that matters. You are loved by Christ. In Christ, we have the perfect friend that all of our earthly relationships point towards. I want you to consider his love for you. Consider his joy in you for just a moment in silence. And then we're going to wrap things up by singing together of our response to him and the wondrous love that he has for us.